You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Magazine covers are meant to tell you what's inside. They're what gets your attention. Classic example of this is when you go to the grocery store. You're waiting in line to make the purchase you intended to make with the food that's in your basket or your cart that you intended to buy. But in addition to all of the sweet delicacies around you are magazines enticing you. They're making invitations to lure you, to promise you information, knowledge, about people, about your own self, about life around you, information in the world, people's biographies. One cover of Outside Magazine tells me what's inside when it talks about how to see the world on a teacher's salary. You're like, wow, really? The whole world? It also says how to build a mountain cabin. You're like, that would be different in Miami. It also says how to trek Everest and so much more. You're like, I just would be happy with Everest. But it's offering me more. I like to read and subscribe to all different kinds of magazines. Over the years, these magazines have ranged from National Geographic Adventure to Runner's World to Foreign Policy to Christianity Today. And each of these magazines kind of have the same intention. They kind of list on the cover what you can find in the content inside. If we're to think of the book of Jonah like a magazine, we'd have to ask the question, what would be on the cover of the magazine? What would be sort of the baiting article titles that we could imagine being stated there? How to get eaten by a giant fish and live to tell about it. Or lessons on runaways and why coming home is always better. Or prayer life. Cold? Here's top 10 tips that can jumpstart your prayer life. We can imagine that these would be the titles for a magazine cover over the book of Jonah. Friends, we come this morning to our final chapter in the book of Jonah, and we want to see it for ourselves and learn it accordingly. In a few short weeks that we have spent together in the book of Jonah, we have been faced with the character of God and, humbly, the character of man. Not just one man, Jonah, but in a spirit of transparency, all men, like you and like me. We've learned about grace and mercy, sovereignty and patience, wickedness and rebelliousness in its many forms. And we've been shocked to learn how we can relate to a soggy prophet and a hedonistic people like the Ninevites. We've also seen how Jesus not only looked to Jonah as a reference for his timeline in the tomb, but also how he provides a counterexample of one who is willing to go where no one else would go or be qualified to go ultimately. Jonah is chock full of drama and intrigue. What we find is the most shocking is that the offense that the prophet takes at mercy, at patience. A prophet be shocked by these things? Well, that's where our passage takes us this morning. If you've not done so, open your Bibles to Jonah chapter four. Jonah chapter four, if you're new to the Bible, Jonah is a four-chapter summary of the life of Jonah, not the entire life, but a section of his life. It's in the Old Testament, 
in a section known as the Minor Prophets, minor just based on size, not the significance of their story, comes just before the pages of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, but all of the Bible written by one ultimate divine author, God himself. And as we saw Jonah in the previous weeks, let's just remind ourselves of the outline of Jonah. The outline of Jonah is as follows. Jonah chapter 1 and 2, Jonah runs and God saves. Good news, chapter 3 and 4, Jonah preaches and God saves. Jonah is different, God is the same. God is saving and saving and saving comes now to our text, Jonah chapter 4. If you would, follow along as I read to you the entire 11 verses. Picking up from the end of chapter 3, which we'll return to in a minute, it says the following in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The end. So it began, so it ends. As we look over this, we see so much to learn here. Jonah 4 is teaching us, really giving us a front row seat, a, the 50-yard line of this match, if you will, this game between Jonah and God. The problem is that Jonah has entered into a league by which he is not qualified. 
This is like a child who is barely eligible for bantam football, some youth football league, is going to enter into a debate of a discussion about the legitimacy of his game with an NFL commissioner. It's way outside of his depth. He has lost his bearing. You could even say lost his mind and forgotten who he's speaking with. Verse 1 shows us how Jonah not only gets off on a bad foot, but also proceeds from a sinful heart. We see that verse 1 really sets the tone for the rest of the chapter and continues this theme of anger, which takes us to the first lesson here. God's grace, His capacity. Look back at verse 1. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, to be fair, chapters and verses did not come along in the record of the Bible until many years after the Bible was written, given as an organizational tool by which we still benefit today. The original writings had no chapters, had no verses. So if we may see as the original writer wrote it, let's look back, if we can, to the end of chapter 3. End of chapter 3, after Jonah preaches arguably the shortest sermon in history, says in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. And then it says in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And Jonah's response, anger. He's angry. Jonah interestingly, takes his concern to the right place, God. But he wants to accomplish the wrong action. He offers a self-righteous critique of the Creator. He issues God a subpoena. God is to appear before the court of Jonah. He will put him on stand. He will stand in judgment over him. And what are the charges that Jonah brings against God? Grace, mercy, love. Look at verse 2. Look what Jonah says in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Interesting how even the plural pronoun here of his my country, he forgets his bearings as to whose country it is, is even reference to the sailors. That I, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. And what's happening here is that Jonah starts to cite to God what God has already earlier said in Revelation to God's people. He's actually quoting God back to God. Selectively, of course. He doesn't give all of the verses. He gives the verses to try to justify his position. What's crazy is imagine what's happening here. A prophet of God is upset when a city of sinners experience a moral reform and respond to God's word. I mean, this is what today's preachers would write books over, host conferences about, become popular and have the social media. And Jonah is ticked. He is throwing a temper tantrum. It describes in verse 1 this exceedingly angry. He is more than just upset. He's more than just bothered. He's so mad, verse 3, he wants to die. And this is where the Bible just again tells us the truth in a way that you're thinking, this has to be led by God because if this is written by men, the PR agent of the Bible is doing a horrible job. 
Following God will always make you happy and wonderful and live a great life. Obeying the Lord will always evermore make you want to obey the Lord even more. Jonah was obeying the Lord many years before this time, and yet here he is rebelling. He asked God to put him out of his misery. How miserable? He's like, listen, there's two options. Either they die or I die. And apparently, God, they're not going to die by your hand. So kill me. This is a passive suicide attempt. This is not death by cop. This is death by God. Take me out. If they have to live, then I want to die. I don't want to live in a world, God, where that kind of mercy and grace is seen where I don't think it's deserved. The solution that we need to see here is profound. One writer says, Jonah finds that the time fuse does not work on the prophetic bomb that he planted in Nineveh. He was hoping for a, I told you so, as God rained judgment down on them. Instead, they listened and repented. How bad do you have to hate someone where you would rather die than occupy the same planet with them? Notice it's not God's character that Jonah is struggling with. It's the application of his character that he's choking on. He wants mercy when he's in the belly of the fish. He prays that he might worship God again. And God saves. That's what's so crazy is that he comes off of a fresh reflection of God's recent salvation of him. Thank you, Lord. I can live again. And now, but if I have to live where they live as well, I want to die. This is a familiar temptation for many of us. I know that God is sovereign, but I resent the fact that I lost my job. I know that God is patient, but why does he not judge the wicked now? I know that God is merciful, but didn't he see what they just did? These are the questions we might not voice with our mouth, but we think in our hearts. Look at verse three. He says, oh Lord, please, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. It's shocking to consider how much your sin can blind you. Jonah was essentially upset with God for being God. That's why I titled the message today, When You're Mad, God is God and You're Not. Jonah is that mad with God. Bottom line for Jonah, someone's going to die. Either they do or I do. There must be death. Verse 4, God poses a question in response. It's a question that comes up again later from God. See, at first in verse 4, the Lord said, Do you well to, do, to be angry? Later on, it comes up again in verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? He's observing this problem of his anger, this dialogue between deity and the creature, between God and his servant. Now, it has been said, perhaps as a turn of a phrase, as a point of way to remember, the problem with anger is that it's only one letter away from Danger. 
Let me, if I can, have a bit of a sidebar with you for a minute or two. I want to speak on a topic that relates to this topic because the question comes, what do we do with problems that we face and the counsel we offer people with those problems? A lot of theories and a lot of ideas and a lot of different means and methods being used in the world today to help people navigate this world. And those often make their way into the church, kind of marrying, if you will, with the Scriptures, this amalgamation of the teaching from the world and the teaching from God. And so the question as a case study is, what would you do with Jonah? He comes to you, he is profoundly angry. He's so angry, he's suicidal. What would we tell him? What counsel could he receive? What is the place of counseling and therapy and psychiatry in the lives of God's people? How would today's modern church offer to help Jonah? There are countless approaches recommended to help Jonah. How can we help Jonah solve his problems and change what's wrong? Should we have him explore how he feels about his family upbringing? Should Jonah do what God commands no matter how he feels? Should he follow his feelings? Should Jonah act on his faith, not his feelings? Should he get in touch with his feelings? Should Jonah get his needs met first? He can't love somebody else until he loves himself. Should Jonah take medication? Should Jonah take a vacation because he's been overworked? Should he take control of his life and responsibility for his choices? Should he cast out the demon that has inserted itself in his operating system of his mind? Should he insert positive affirmations into the flow of his negative self-talk? Maybe putting him on a three-by-five card in the mirror he can look at every morning. Should he claim his new identity as a follower of God? Should he take a season of prayer and fasting? Should he take a stand on the promises of God? Should he get an accountability partner? Should he indeed get into an exercise program, cut off his caffeine intake, get those endorphins flowing again? Should he just suck it up like a buttercup and quit being so self-centered? What should Jonah do? Or come at the question from a different angle, who can help Jonah? Does he need 10 sessions with a psychotherapist, a retreat with a spiritual director, a visit to a medical doctor, an encounter with an exorcist? Should he hire a personal trainer? Should he join a weekly support group? Should he sit under solid preaching and get a better quiet time? Should he find a few good friends? In this age of therapy and self-talk, where everyone is a self-titled life coach with a followership on social media, becoming professionals, directing everyone else's lives, what would we tell Jonah? After all, there are so many variations and permutations and combinations of counseling and therapy these days. So many theories and trends and fads and therapies that shift and mutate and combine and innovate and reinvent themselves. And friends, don't worry. If you've not read it, it's coming. A bestseller coming soon to you that'll fix your life. The New York Times tells us this. To help provide clarity and give some biblical bumper guards for you, don't forget to ask these four questions when you're discerning what to listen to. And I mean this again as a sidebar. Four questions to ask to help people evaluate how biblical the counseling is. You'd do well to write these down or take a picture of these to remember these in the future. Number one, how is God portrayed? How is God portrayed? 
Is the God revealed in Scripture central to how we are to understand and address the sins and the sufferings of the human condition? In particular, what role and significance are given to Jesus Christ in this problem and the corresponding solution? Number two, how is human nature interpreted? What is the human motivation? Why do you do what you do? No counseling material, no genre accordingly of secular DNA can ever get to the motivational theory straight on this. Number three, how are circumstances weighed or considered? Is the stage in which we live decisive and deterministic, the final say? Or are you just simply diagnosing your problem, learning to cope with it until the day you die? Friend, you are a prisoner so many would say, to your condition, and you just learn to get along with it until you die. Or is God arranging, working, mysteriously at times, bringing things for your good and His glory? And question number four, how are the goals and activities of counseling conceived? Is it the cure of souls, the restoration of sinful humanity to the image of Christ by the grace of Christ? Is it comforting the disturbed and disturbing the comfortable? Is it the transformation of our sins and the consolation of our sorrows? It's counseling essentially pastoral. David Pallison helpfully writes the following. Defective counseling models always get counseling wrong. The counselor acts as an archaeologist who explores your past and your interior to give insight, as a mechanic who alters what's not working satisfactorily in your cognitions or behaviors, as a coach who formulates a game plan for successful living and cheers you on, as a friend who accepts you just as you are, as a parent who meets your psychological need for love, as a philosopher who offers a believable interpretation of life without any God, as a doctor who prescribes the medicine to make you feel better, and so forth. Biblical wisdom, he says, considers counseling to be a ministry of the saving power of the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. Valid insights, alterations, and encouragements, and so arise within that relationship. I say all that to bring us back to the text of Jonah. Jonah is angry. And God poses a question. Jonah, why are you angry? Sometimes there's a lot to learn from questions. What is it that's being asked? What is it that's not being asked? What's being accented? Who's asking it? The Lord saying, do you do well to be angry? What's interesting here is that God answers Jonah. Jonah prays. God hears. And God responds. But Jonah doesn't want to listen to the response. What's so shocking in verse 4, God asks a question. Verse 5, Jonah left. He went out of the city. Admittedly, as a pastor, I find when giving counsel to many Christians that we as Christians don't often lack for information. We lack for obedience to the information we've already learned. It's not a lack of understanding. It's a lack of believing, of surrendering, 
Notice Jonah's response. He isolates himself. He justifies himself. He has accusations against God, and he continues in his foolishness. Now that we've learned about the grace that God shows Jonah and the people of Nineveh, secondly, let's learn about God's sovereignty, his control. God's sovereignty, his control. Over the previous chapters, we saw God's sovereignty in a number of ways, but let's just highlight his sovereignty over creation. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4, God hurls a great wind upon the sea. Chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish to release Jonah. Chapter 4 now, verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant to grow. Chapter 4, verse 7, the Lord appointed a worm to eat the plant. Chapter 4, verse 7, the Lord appointed a scorching east wind and the sun. What's happening? What's happening is that Jonah is wrestling with God being God. From the small to the great. And he resents God being God. You have to understand as a prophet, as a follower of Israel, as one who would have been schooled in the teachings of the Torah, and the other teachers would come along, Jonah would be schooled in what we refer to as the word of God. Consider, though, if you will, this passage from Jeremiah 18 that Jonah would have known. Verse 7 and 8 says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation, this is God speaking here, concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of that disaster, of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Jonah selectively takes the Bible, gives it back to God, but leaves out the parts that otherwise God would know. And Jonah would know, but he doesn't want to talk to God about. God's doing what God does. At every point in the entire chapter, Jonah's attitude stands in complete contrast to God's relationship to Nineveh. And God's question captures the very intention of the book. You can see the question here. He's, he's wanting to know, what is your place in this? God appointing the worm, God appointing the east wind. So just so you kind of get a sense of the feel of the scene. Here's what happened. Jonah preaches, and basically in his mind he's like, I told you so. Just wait, it's going to come. And then he goes and he builds himself essentially a shack, a shed, of course, like a, a shelter. What's interesting is that, that word being used here is tabernacle, which is a fascinating historical word, which would be used as a place with God. So there he is under the shelter and God appoints a plant to grow up and give shade to this. Jonah is thankful. This is the Middle East. He is thankful. And then God appoints a worm to then eat the plant. So now the plant has died. There's no shade. And then to make matters worse, seemingly, God then appoints an east scorching wind, which is basically like saying a desert wind that comes upon him and overwhelms him. And Jonah is furious. How could you do this to me? How could you let this happen to me? He wants God's grace in his life for a plant. But he does not want God's grace in the life of the Ninevites for salvation. Man, his scales are off. His perspective is so skewed. But isn't that true for you and I so often? The issue is that of grace. Grace and mercy. 
He wanted God's grace in his life, and he's mad that God wouldn't give it, but he's even more mad when God gives it to somebody else. He doesn't think deserves it. One author, G.V. Smith, said, God will and does act in justice against sin. But his great love for every person in the world causes him to wait patiently, to give graciously, to forgive mercifully, and to accept compassionately even the most unworthy people in the world. To experience the grace of God and not be willing to tell others of his compassion is a tragedy all must avoid. Messengers of God can neither limit the grace of God nor control its distribution, but they can prevent God's grace from having an effect on their own lives. Friends, how shocking this is and how convicting this is. Grace, by definition, means unmerited or undeserved favor. Think with me for a moment. Visualize, if you will, a room. And in this room that's giant are all kinds of treasures, all kinds of gifts. Think of Christmas, all the gifts that come to people in light of Christmas in many different households. But that room is entered through a doorway. You cannot get into that room to get to those gifts, those treasures, than through any other means than to enter in through that doorway. That door must be open to enter into that room to access all of those treasures, all those gifts. And that door has a name on it. It's called grace. And you open that door of grace, and it opens up to a room larger than you can imagine, with more gifts than you can conceive of. It's all there for you. Gifts of love, gifts of forgiveness, of kindness, gifts of patience, of mercy, gifts of answered prayer, gifts of salvation, of forgiveness, gifts of adoption, of justification, of heaven, gifts of being long-suffering, gifts of having Jesus as your high priest representing you, gifts of you having an advocacy with the Father, gifts of the Holy Spirit indwelling you as a comforter and encourager to you, and yet you're saying, I want all of that room, but I don't want to control who gets open that door. I stand as a bouncer, protecting God's gifts from people that I do not think deserve them. It would beg the question whether or not you truly understand them for yourself as well. Now, for those of you who are not Christians, this should oddly encourage you. how would it oddly encourage you? Because undoubtedly, you can think in the privacy of your own mind right now, perhaps reflecting on it already, of things that you have done, that you know in your conscience, no one had to tell you otherwise, your conscience has told you so, oh, that, that's not good. That's not good. God won't like that. And then, to no surprise, you then did it again. 
and again and again. And then surprisingly, you did not do it, but then surprisingly, even when you did not do it, you felt proud of yourself for not doing it and started to look down at others who did do it. And the reason you're oddly encouraged by this is because you're reminded, wow, you can be seriously jacked up from a Ninevite who is wildly wicked and murderous and God extends grace to surprisingly religious, knowledgeable, biblically informed, well-raised and in need of God's grace. God's grace is there to whomever would respond to his invitation. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 11. Come to me. Verse 28, he says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are heavy laden in burden, and who? He says, I will give you rest. Not only do the Ninevites need rest, Jonah needs rest. Friend, you need rest. To believe that you can either get away with what you're doing by denying there's a God, or Get away with what you're doing by promising tomorrow to try better is a fool's errand. But to see that God's grace to you and the promise to love you and forgive you no matter what you do, what comfort that is. So ironically, it's a comfort to the wildly rebellious. That doorway opens up wide to you as God's grace invites you to respond to the goodness of his son and his sacrifice and his death and his resurrection that believing in Christ alone for forgiveness of sins. But this is important to learn as well. Not only does Jonah 4 offer comfort to those who think they don't qualify, it offers conviction to those who always think they do qualify. Jonah is so blinded by his own personal pride, not only how he sees himself, but how he sees God, he can't say anything clearly. And he actually imagines death as better than life. What a tragic reality of how he lives. He wants, indeed, Jonah to recognize this, which takes us third and final, God's patience, his clock. We talked about God's grace, his capacity. We talked about God's sovereignty, his control. And now third and final, God's patience, his clock. God's patience is seen all over the book of Jonah, but no more is it seen as it is here. The man that God has called to be a prophet on God's behalf has thrown a temper tantrum all over a plant. He's upset about the stupidest of things. God has the final word in this book of grace and mercy and rebellion and selfishness. Look at verse 10 and 11. Let's read it again. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. 
Now, a lot of ink has been spilt on the interpretation and explanation of the 120,000 persons. Some have proposed that the 120,000 persons is referring to the population of the people of Nineveh. I don't think that's the most accurate translation of it only because the, the record of the city and its military reach would certainly justify a population greater than that. I don't think referring to the people who are occupying this place, not only the left hand from the right hand, is some sort of condescending term as if they're just dumb people. They're just stupid. These people have an established government. They're wildly wicked and rebellious, as we learned in the previous weeks. But they know what they're doing. This seems to be an argument for even the children. Do you not even have compassion for the children who are so young they don't even yet know information? They don't even yet know their left hand from their right hand. That's how I would interpret this to mean even the children, Jonah. Do you not even have compassion for them? And in the reference to the cattle. What can we learn from this? How often do you or I find ourselves caring about things that have no bearing on eternity while we miss the important matters of this life? Too often, as Christians, we might be complaining against God or against each other based on something that we should care so little about. We, like Jonah, can pity something for which we did not labor, which we did not make grow, which we had nothing to do with. It just came into being by God's sovereign choice, and yet we complain like we own it. We're mad that God took it. It was all from him to begin with. We're so easily capable of cherishing the wrong thing. How does this worth of an immortal soul stack up against our own chosen toy, our own possession, our own sense of accomplishment? The question that's being asked here is in terms of the souls of others, but it also be asked about individual souls. I mean, to those of you who are not in Christ, consider the following. What Jesus says in Matthew 16, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? It's tragic that Jonah is prioritizing the wrong things. It'd be even more tragic if you made the same mistake after hearing this today. What possession could you acquire? What accomplishment could you have secured? What reputation could you have built? That quite honestly is insignificant in comparison to eternity. Here today, gone tomorrow. For us as Christians, one of the challenges that we could have ourselves is to think of our riches in Christ, the joy of heaven, the promise of eternal life, which we're tempted to think are actually are true, but not as important of what we're living for here. I'll be happy if I get married. I'm single and I desperately want to get married. I'll be happy if I have a child, if we as a couple finally can get pregnant or can adopt, then I'll be happy. If I can then accomplish this work expectation, then I can be happy. To place it in something other than what God gives becomes a carrot that you can never reach. Friends, the reality here of what we see in the text is that Jonah ends with a question. Only one other book in the entire Bible ends with a question. It's the book of Nahum, which ironically is like Jonah part two. Many years later to the same people, who would later, generations later, have turned against God again, and then they will be judged. 
as the book of Jonah ends with a question, so does the sermon end with a question. What will you do? What is God leading you to do today to respond? Is it for some of you to surrender to Christ and give your life to him that you might be spared from judgment? For others of you, is it to repent of your self-righteousness that you don't want to see others receive the same grace that you have received? What is God calling you to do? And honestly, I don't know that. Only you do. So the question is, what will you do with what God's word has said to you today? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.